Got a couple of announcements. On July 16th through 17th, I'm going to be speaking at the New View IRA Real Estate Summit. You guys can get free access to that by going to simplepassivecashflow.com slash events. And also, I am doing a full-day workshop on August 1st for remote investing. So everything you guys want to know about remote investing, we're going to try and run out in about six hours of content. Check that out at simplepassacashflow.com slash events also. And I'm super excited about new incubator group. What this group is for, it's a five-month boot camp for new investors looking to get their first remote rental property. We're going to be doing bi-weekly conference calls and holding your hand through the entire process. Get access to our lenders, our insurance providers, brokers, turnkey providers, property managers. We're going to try and make sure that we're going to do what we can so you guys don't mess up buying your first rental property. Check that out at simplepassivecashflow.com slash incubator. And if you're an accredited investor, evaluate some bigger syndication deals, check out the flagship program, The Mastermind, by going to simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, Simple Passive Castle listeners. Today we have a coaching client here, John. Uh, we're going to go through his personal financial sheet and talk a little bit about acquiring that first single family home rental, that turnkey rental. So uh, introducing uh, John, I don't know if that's your real name or not, but we're going to call you Little John just because, okay. I don't know, it's fun. going to keep All it right. fun. <laughs> okay, I'll be Little John. All hey. right. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, we met like about a year, year and a half ago, but you know, just, just so that the people listening out there, maybe kind of just give them a sense of you know, where you're at so when we go through your personal financial sheet and your mindset going through this uh, coaching call, they can kind of, you know, certain people will resonate with this. Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me on. Um, so yeah, we did meet about a year ago at the time I was just, um, so I'm a lawyer by trade. So at the time I was switching jobs from um, like a big law firm. So more like intense work to uh, an in-house position. So that kind of after law school, I did like five years at a big law firm and that's, like a very intense 80 hour a week job. So you don't see much of your friends, family and all that. So trading your time and, and all that, it gets, it gets, you know, it brings you down. And so I started listening to podcasts maybe three years ago. And then I came upon yours probably two years ago, um, about six months before we met. And then, um, so just educating myself and wanting to get kind of out of the rat race, that whole mentality, like everybody does and reading rich dad and all that. Like it's not, but I knew I couldn't really, I didn't have the time to spend on investing other than listening to podcasts and reading books here and there. But eventually I, uh, once I made the switch job wise, I freed up a lot of my time. And then kind of alongside with that, I, on the family front, I like, you know, had a kid and started to settle down more. So then it's starting to be more of a, you know, a sustainable environment. Like I'm not, I wasn't like, you know, stuck at the chain to my desk per se, but I still wanted to pursue investing more seriously, you know, about a year ago. So then I've been, since then, we've been kind of talking about getting my first turnkey property. That's something we'll probably talk about today. And so then that's kind of my background, you know, having the high wage, but, you know, now time constraints with family and then also just having to grow my portfolio organically. That's 
you know, that's my position. So, so when we first started, um, you had written like a little memoirs of a lawyer thing for me. Yeah. What were some of the, the, I thought that was pretty powerful. I didn't know that's how it really was in a lawyer. My, my journey was, you know, being a construction supervisor. That's how usually engineers start out. Right. Um, what were some of the messed up stories that we can throw a teaser in there and then I'll link up the article that you put together for me. Kind of. Sure. Yeah. So it was, um, I mean, it's when you get out of law school, you can go a couple different routes and one of the more popular routes to pay off. Like yours, you know, we have like at least 160 in debt is the common number, 160,000. So, um, and you know, for me, like it was even more than that. So, you know, you, you try to take a high paying job and they call it like a big law job. And these are the firms that, you know, it's kind of like the equivalent of, you know, high finance type things. So, for me, it was like representing like these big M&A guys, private equity guys who, you know, they're working also 80 to 100 hours a week grinding. And um, but you're like even, you know, you're servicing their needs. So you're on call all the time. You don't see um, your friends and family and you can't really make plans, you know, so that becomes frustrating on a personal front. But also like you kind of see the partner track. And that was something that really dis- dissatisfied me. You know, like you see like, guys who kind of get the golden handcuffs mentality. You come in, you're making like I think starting now is even higher, but it was something like, I don't know, I think currently it's like 180,000 to start. So you can imagine like if they're paying you that money, much money with zero experience other than going to law school, like they're going to pretty much own you, own you. Right. So like any, you're sitting there like Friday night, you know, having dinner with the family and they're like, Hey, this weekend we got a deal coming in. You're, you're done. Like you got to come in. And it's like that for like, you know, and then you don't know when it ends, you know, I've taken multiple trips where, you know, I just go like on a four day binge, like up to another office and you're just working 24 hours a day and it's really high stress. It's not just like being there and like turning paper. It's like, it's very high stress. Like I've never actually had to go through that kind of like stress level before. Do, you, do they ever like, I mean, when I was at my job, like I was telling my wife the other day, like, you know, they would tell us, oh, that's piss poor planning. They would literally say stuff like that. And they just like, be super mean to you. And yeah. Like, that's that's horrible leadership. Like, right. What are you talking about? That's horrible leadership. That's horrible leadership. Just talking to me like that. But, yeah, no, that's not. And you know, you can imagine like a stressful environment. That's exactly like the stuff that happens too, right? Like not only dealing with like the work itself, and then like not being able to see your friends and family, and then once in a while, like people get like testy, right? Like I was fortunate not to have too much of that, but like there were some times where you're like, you know, there's some clashing, and and then you're just like, dude. Like now you just hate your life, right? Pretty much you're just miserable. And you're like, I can't leave. You feel the sense of like, I can't leave, right? So it's like, I have this deal that's there. Like it's going to keep me to my desk for the next two months, right? And it's like, oh, great. And and now I'm like feuding with somebody on the team. It's kind of, you know, that happens. So, I mean, that's it's tough. Like emotionally, I mean, just talking about it in the abstract, it seems like, okay, it's fine. But like one of the things I, I think I mentioned in that article was like, we were doing like a closing or something for a deal that we've been working on for like two months. And then the night before, like the the partner who I was working with, and he's like twenty years older than me, like, and he's just like, you know, like I don't get it. Like we're like the smartest, like we think we're the smartest guys in the room, but there's like a client there who's like he's he slept like four hours ago. It's like two a.m. now, and he's gonna wake up in the morning and get paid like ten million, and like I'm gonna have to close another deal tomorrow night. And he's like, this is like a, not the best career to get into. So like just hearing that from somebody who like you think made it, right? He's making probably like. At one two million a year or something which is great but he's like he's working 100 hours a week all the time and always going under that stress and i was like why why not be the client right that's like 
that's just something everyone would probably think about, but it's not easy to do that, of course. But at the same time, it's like I have the opportunity to think outside the box because I'm younger, you know. I don't want to get down that road where like 20 years from now, I regret everything. Right, right. So I've got your uh, your personal financial sheet for those of you listening in on uh, or watching on YouTube. Um, little follow on the visual aid. I got the personal financial sheet. So currently you're making about 13000 a, m- a month, which, but how much was it back in the day when you're at that crappy job? It was much higher? It was higher. So it was, um, it's probably, let me see, this is like 145. Yeah, this was, I think it was like, um, like 16000 or so. Yeah. So some 16000 to high 12s. Do you notice the difference? I mean, yeah yeah I know yeah, you do okay yeah. <laughs> yeah I do I mean like back then you're like used to seeing like a big you know paycheck and you're like oh man like great I'll use that someday you know but now it's like oh I want to use it for investing it's like oh well it's not that much I have to save some of it for you know the kid and the wife and then you know the rest of it I guess I have to try to figure out how to invest it and there he is on on cue in the background. Yeah, yeah on cue, you heard me. <laughs> and, and that's the other big thing, right? You lost the secondary income too. When yeah, yeah, that's another thing. Um, like my my wife was in the same profession as me, and then once we had the kid, about a year and a half ago, like she stopped, and so um, you, know, you can imagine we were saving, putting away a lot of money, and then we end up getting you know a house here in California, which is expensive real estate to live in we can talk about that some more but that was all planning to have a kid and then she stopped working so now we're kind of like in a more you know stable environment in terms of my job but yeah there's not a lot being saved so that's tough yeah so dual income no kids instagramming traveling all over the world went to single income (laughs) and then the uh the student loans stayed the same so yeah let me see where that is it's under yeah page three here somewhere in here so you've got about 2300 in loans per month yeah what's the principle on that thing or the the total i think it's uh the total like it's not saying balance right it's like it's still got 170 left to pay okay okay so the first thing you know, I think we, we, we got this done. We just put this on deferment, right? Or not deferment, but just a lease as possible, which is so t- a lot. No, we tried. Yeah. So that was something that we started out talking like immediately a year ago. You said try to negotiate and see if I could get a longer term on it. Like for me, unfortunately, I was already like in a weird spot with my loan where it wasn't technically qualified as a student loan, like in terms of the government. So they wouldn't let you refinance into another student loan. So even if I found a better rate, I have a really good rate, right? Like, although you say that doesn't really matter. Like, that's how, what drew me in three years ago when I refinanced it. I got a good rate. And then uh, then I tried to re- refinance it last year. And they're like, oh, you, it's a personal loan now. So, but a lot of other guys like out there who are listening, who are trying to do this, like if you if you can refinance it, like I've talked to a lot of the major like student, um, student loan like lenders. And I think the best you could get it's like 15 year term. So like, I'm still like on, I have like six and a half years left. So it didn't start originally like 10 years, but I think like you were saying, spread it out as long as you can. So that 2,400 a month becomes like 1200. If you can, that's frees up a lot of cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. And most people will be focused on getting rid of debt. Um, but that's maybe not the best thing to do, right? The cash flow for you to save, to buy a 
properties is probably the more important. Yeah. Because right now, yeah, you're making a ton, but you're also spending a ton. Um, yeah. And your net cash flow is you're barely able to save 20 grand a year, right? And you, know, you go on vacation, that wipes that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess one, one last question on the whole student loan thing. Is that um, is that why like you hear all these guys like refinancing and stuff like that. Is that the, the nuance that it, they're refinancing from like a government subsidized loan to a more pub private loan? Yeah, that's right. Like, yeah. And that's why there's like, I don't know. My, my wife came back to yesterday and one of her bonehead friends was like, Oh, the, um, we will refinance all this, this student debt. And now it's 3.5. And I was like, it doesn't seem right to me. <laughs> There's something going on here. Is that so? That's the thing that's going on, right? Well, no. So I think now, like, if you did it, I think that is right. It sounds like too good to be true type thing, right? Like something weird is happening. So it starts at seven percent, I think, around for government when you put all those different loans together. Yeah, a lot of these guys they're getting it for like three point five for ten year or whatever it is. Um, and that's obviously to anybody, it seems great. Right. But like, again, like I didn't realize that I should choose a longer term if possible and you can always pay more. Right. Like that's something that I learned from you. Oh, like, okay. Okay. So the, the amortization schedule is a lot shorter. Yeah. It's a lot shorter. It's a 10 year. Right. And that's, that's the problem. So it's 10 year or some, like you can go to as low as five years. Some people do that. Like they think like, Oh, I'm going to go through residency in med school and I'm going to get out and make 200 grand. And I'm going to pay it off in five years. But like, that five years is not guaranteed, right? You know, that's the problem. And same with my job, right? When I got out, I did it for five years and I was like barely able to do it. And so that's the thing. If you could, right, you would try to do a 15 year. And I think they used to do even 30 year. That's like, that was pre-recession though. But I think now 15 is probably the longest you can get and like you get the rate you can. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, now, now I see exactly what's happening and I can rebuttal it. But yeah, nobody, yeah. none of those guys ever listened to me. Yeah, they go up to the rate. Like that was what I went to, right? Like I chased the rate, and I was like, "Oh, that's great! I can pay it off." But that's like, you know, you're paying still two thousand dollars a month. That's like a whole. Yeah. 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 I mean, the for those of you guys, I mean, go check out my article, simplepassivecashflow dot com slash debt. Um. So it was in my article was in Forbes, and I wanted to get in Forbes because nobody listens to me, but they listen to <laughs> Forbes. But it's not all about debt or interest rate. Sophisticated investors don't look, think, look at interest rate or debt. They look at your impact on your net worth. So in this case, if he can go for a longer amortization schedule to free up more cash flow to invest in more assets like rental properties, that'll have a bigger positive impact on his net worth at the end of the day. So also looking at this, um, you know, why is your cash flow so low? I mean, obviously it's here, it's the living expenses. So you live in California. Yeah. And you own your own home. Um, we can talk about that a little bit here, I think. So I was like, dude, you gotta, you gotta, why, why you rent, why you bought, bought a home? And so why did you buy a home? Uh, this is like, it's probably half cultural and half, or more than that. I mean, cultural meaning like everyone around here, like that's kind of like all my friends and family. That's like what you do, right? When you get to this point in life. Like, so there's that brainwashing aspect of it. And then like, there's like, for me personally, it was like having a kid. That was a big part of it. So once we knew, we like started looking for a house. And I think a lot of my friends and colleagues are doing that too. Like, no matter what you say, like renting is better type thing. Everyone has a sense of like, oh, I've got to own my own home. Right. So it's kind of hard to 
convince anyone otherwise. You know, it's, it's weird. It's just, at least for where I'm at, um, and, and the people who are like my friends who are high paid professionals or whatever, that's kind of what everyone's thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys, the, the article there, simplepassivecashflow.com slash home. If you guys want to take a look at that, it's better to rent in primary markets like California, Hawaii, Seattle, all of East coast. But you guys, you know, do the numbers yourself because numbers don't lie. But one thing I did ask uh, John here was like, one observation I've been having is the spouse, whether the spouse is male or female, it doesn't even matter. If they have come from a, a place of financial scarcity, like they didn't have too much money growing up, a lot of times what I noticed is the house is super, uh, they cling on to that. Yeah. But I, I remember for you, it was kind of the, the opposite, right? I mean, but yeah. I don't know if that's right, right? A lot of this is like pseudoscience and I kind of, I haven't been at this for too long, but just a little observation of why that is because people yeah. want security and safety. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And I mean, it's for some people, like some of my friends, a good majority of them, they think that it's like you're in California, it's an appreciating market. So they think that's investing too, right? Like obviously we're not like trying to get in it for the appreciation, but like, some people think like, oh, it's like I'm putting money in a piggy bank, growing at a greater percentage than my savings account, and they think it's safer that way. Like, right. And so I mean, they also the majority think that way. So yeah, and then they talk about like the tax deductions and all that, and like yeah, you're still paying sixty percent of that. Yeah. Right? So, um, but yeah, I think like still like yeah, it's more comfortable living for sure. But it's like, you know, like it's a it's definitely an expense in my eyes it's like you see it like um it's a liability it's but for some people still think of it as like oh it's, i'm gonna buy this great asset so that's another like i don't know mistake i guess a lot of people make at my age in this area at least yeah but what's done is done and, and you know you got the kids so you can't really move around you're not too mobile but there's enough um, breathing room here that we can we can uh, move around a little bit yeah uh so that's where we are. You're able to save about 20 grand a year at most. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully when, once you start to get going, you know, you can definitely put a turbo charge on the savings and maybe you, your pay will go up a little bit and your, you might tighten the belt and expenses. So that'll be, that'll be helpful. Right. So where are we at today? You know, your assets, how much liquidity do you have it on hand? Mm -hmm. um, you've probably got like right about 40. I told you to save like, 30,000 for is like a down payment on a good B C class property. It's like a hundred grand. And then, you know, you've got a little breathing room, 10 grand for um, other cash reserves. So you're ready to go there. Let me see how, I mean, so your home is 920,000 and your current mortgage on that is six, 600,000 about mm -hmm. you, you got a HELOC on that. You, you go check that yeah. out. I did. I put that somewhere down below. I think on continuing liabilities or something. I think uh, maybe it's not reflected. Yet. It's on the. It's the extra hundred on uh, my on top of my student loan payment. That twenty four sixty under uh, under uses of cash. But down below, you see twenty four sixty a little above that. Yeah, right there. So that's like I think it's like one hundred and forty or so a month in terms of HELOC payments. It's like outstanding balance of sixteen thousand. It was a twenty thousand dollar HELOC because I got it right as soon as I bought the house. So they were like, "You can only afford the twenty thousand dollar HELOC," you know, at the time. Oh, okay, okay. And I used it. I maxed it out for we like 
you know, we renovated the house. We went all in, you know? Oh, so, man, you went all in and then some. Yeah, and then okay. some, exactly. So okay. very happy with where I'm living, but I'm paying for it now, right? But yeah, the, the HELOC's an interesting only like, 10-year loan. So like, that's not something I'm worried too much about, you know? Like 10 years from now, the student loan will be gone. I'll have a lot more to pay it off and all that. It's not that much. But it doesn't really give me much flexibility either, right? It's not like an open line of credit. It's like I got three, four grand on that I could use if I need to for emergencies, but I'm slowly paying down like $100 a month. So, so that's 20, 20 grand of this $900,000 house is just barely 5%. Yeah. I mean, what, have you thought about going out and getting like one of these teaser loan, teaser rates for like 80% LTV? No, I haven't. And then going out and, um, because how much did you take out for the HELOC? 20 grand? Yeah. How much of that did you actually use? I think we used all that at first, but now it's down to 16. I think it's outstanding. Oh. Okay. I mean, in effect, it's still, at, it's still at the 20, but like you could probably, you've got $300,000 here. They, they'll usually give you 80%. I mean, you could probably get a HELOC for like 150, 200, I'm guess, guessing. Oh, okay. And then you pay off the 16, 17 grand. Um, yeah. Check out that the site, simplepassivecashflow.com slash HELOC. Okay. But here in Hawaii, there's like three or four banks that, because we only have six banks here. Uh, there's three or four banks that are always competing for HELOC business. So they'll give you like these one or two year HELOCs at like, like one or 2%. And wow. what you do, it's a little game. And I have sort of the instructions there. Like you can hop from one to the other to the other. Yeah. They have like, they have like minimum hold periods, right? That's mine was at least like or minimum periods in which it has to be open or something. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you're, you're a lawyer. Figure it out. It's not too hard. But the whole point is not not the, so much the rate, right? Because, like I said, sophisticated investors don't care about their interest rate as much. Mm-hmm. But it's now you have access to like two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, which you just a fraction of that to extinguish the seventeen grand. Right. Sending HELOC, and now you've got another big chunk to use to go out and buy. Let's just say you had 200, you could buy one to do for eight rentals to yeah. create $2,000 of passive cash flow a month. Yeah, I think that's, the ne- that's one of the next steps after yeah. buying this first rental because you can use your liquidity right now. So that's yeah. no problem. But yeah, put that on your action item list for sure. Okay, cool. Because there's got to be like the teaser rates in California. You just look around for them or screw it. Just pay the, the 5% or whatever it is, whatever the market rent rate is. But the important thing is you're getting on the 80% of the, the value mm-hmm. of, the, of the available balance, right? I know I'm saying it wrong, but yeah. So, like, so the idea is like if I took a HELOC, let's say, let's just say, for example, $150,000 HELOC, and then I'd use, let's say, 30000 by the next property, I'd be paying interest on that 30000 let's say, at 5% or whatever, right? And then I just had to make sure the numbers work where when I run the numbers through my like rental property calculator that at the end of the day, the cash flow can service that as well. So that it's positive. That's the whole idea. Yeah. I mean, you can even put like the, the hundred, 200 grand in HP and you're making 5% still. <laughs> yeah. Just net it out. huh? Right. Right. Yeah. Obviously I don't really want you to do that because that's kind of putting too much eggs in one basket, but that's just a theory. Right. That's actually a good idea. Cause you can, you can find the sweet spot. Like you were saying, right? Like get a good chunk that you know is going to pay off in those nodes. It's guaranteed, and then the rest of it just deploy it 
and just make sure it's positive cash flow on these turnkeys. Right, right. So, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of transition to more granular stuff right now. But, you know, once you get your first rental, now you're dead in the water, right? Mm-hmm. So the yeah. next step would be to get the HELOC going. Okay. Distinguish that, that first loan, the, the 17000 the current HELOC. And then uh, now you have way more money to play with. Right. That $20,000 one, it was like a sucker deal. That's like them giving you a free appetizer where, where you got to pay for two freaking entrees. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That it's was the same, su- it's the same bank too that my mortgage is with. So they're like, ah, oh, we don't care. You know, like. Yeah, just- yeah. So the banks will actually, the other banks are more than willing to walk you, walk you by the hand on how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's great, man. I didn't, I didn't, I knew there was all this ton of equity going to be stuck in this place because, you know, that's part of the deal. But I just didn't know how to access it. I was like, I don't know what they're going to do with that HELOC. And I didn't really think too much about it either. I was just like, oh, it's too much hassle to refinance or whatever it might be called where you get a HELOC to extinguish this. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that'll be, I would start that in the next month, but right now the task on hand and what we'll kind of talk about now is you've been doing some work on, you know, calling around to some turnkey providers. I, I uh, gave you a list of some guys I've worked with and then, um, yeah, maybe give us an idea where we're at now and then we can kind of roll through this, uh, the sheet. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking in the, um, in Alabama in uh, Birmingham, that's one of the two places I think you mentioned um there or atlanta and so i just kind of focused on this one for cash flow and so then i don't know this is probably over six months ago i started calling some of your um providers and and people you've worked with in the past just to get just to you know make a relationship and then they started sending me properties you know and then i'd put them i'd analyze them under your um, deal analyzer spreadsheet which i think you have somewhere um and that was super helpful like that thing allowed me to create data points and like start to compare, right? Because until you start doing the analysis, you like, you don't know other than the 1% rule, like what any of these properties look like. So I started doing that um, a while back and then I kept a log of maybe 40, 50 properties over time that I started looking at. And just most of them just didn't really make sense. They didn't cash flow under your, at least your setup, at least. Like in terms of they didn't, the rent minus more, you know, PITI and then also minus all the reserves. They just didn't have a positive cash flow. So there's only a handful that did. And so now I'm at the point where, um, and I, I was able to network with some people that you um, that you knew too and um, and you connected me with. So then one of the investors um, uses this current provider I'm pursuing their property under in, in Alabama. And that's where I'm hoping to lock it down in the next week or so. Um, yeah, and that and that's like one thing I tell every investor that books a call with me that like you got your job is to go find other passive investors where they're you're buying turnkey rentals or looking for syndication deals. I mean the the network is the most critical thing. Your network work is your net worth is the saying. And I mean I can only help you so far, but it's the other relationships with other people that are gonna be they're doing the same thing and on the same level as you are, are critical. Yeah it's really cool too it validates everything right because like of course like one success story when you're telling other people it's like you know you, you think like oh maybe lane just got lucky or something you know like people who listen to you probably don't think that but like if you're new to the game you might think oh it's just someone got lucky but then once you start networking with these people you're like man there's a lot of people out there who are doing exactly what i want to do and what lane has said to do and they're doing really well apparently because they're they're still chugging along right they're buying their fifth sixth property 
So that really helped too. Like just kind of just to sell it to me, you know, and then also now I can sell it to others if I can do it right. But yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I'll try and find this guy who's pretty, uh, he seems really dumb just to make you guys feel better. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's how what I got when I got started, I was kind of like, man, this guy can do it. Yeah. I can do it. I can be okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, (laughs) I think that's, you know, whatever it does, it gets you motivated. Right. Yeah. For sure. Like people who like you, you think like, oh, like you got to have a lot of money or whatever it is. Like a lot of it's hustle. Right. So that's what I'm learning. Like I just need that's a lot of it's like having the time to hustle on the side like and do this. That's the hardest part, probably. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that part of it. I mean, that's the guys signing up for like the one on one coaching. It's like like, for example, the HELOC we just talked about. Right. Like at the, at the end of the day, sometimes it's just accountability. And it's just like, John, did you freaking go and like get that talk to the bank for five minutes? no man i didn't you know like why not you know would you rather like work for another six years at 20 grand positive cash flow a year to get that 120 grand would you rather spend 10 freaking minutes to go get that heloc done get 120 grand that way yeah it's great you know (laughs) yeah i think people like it's like it's a lack of yeah like we just don't know right obviously you don't know what you don't know and then also like you don't think about it the way that you might, right? You're, you're like, oh man, that's like getting another loan. I'm not ready for another loan, but you don't realize that that's a good debt, right? You know, like in the scheme of things, at least. So until you said it 10 minutes ago to me on the call, I didn't even, didn't click with me because I'm still probably thinking of the old, you know, like the old ways of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why the personal financial sheet is, is so powerful, right? Cause I can see the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. So, so yeah. So the first thing here, um, the purchase and sale agreement what's up here yeah so i can give a little do you want me to give a little background on this yeah one? yeah sure so i'm so pretty much i talked to this specific provider and they have this pretty short form purchase and sale agreement and i think you mentioned lane that like for you like there's mls deals and there's non-mls deals so mls is a form right that's already like everyone uses it agrees to it, i guess if you buy off the mls so it's more mutual here, if you're going with turnkey providers, what I'm learning is that they provide their forms, which makes sense. They're the seller. And it's going to be probably more favorable to them in terms of being like skinny. So they have less reps or, or whatever representations or whatever they're saying that you're going to get with the deal. So it's kind of like I, I'm in a <laughs> like I'm in a wild west. I need to figure out like what I need to include in here that doesn't look over lawyerly either, right? Like I can't just add on 20 pages to this thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's good that, you know, this is why I bring you guys on because a lot of the stuff I forgot about. But yeah, it is. I, I remember talking about this in one of the first podcasts. I, the first 20 podcasts are all about turnkey rentals and this kind of stuff. And I mentioned, you know, you can buy properties three ways. Um, first is through the turnkey provider. And it is sort of the wild, wild west. You're buying it. It's so I don't know if it's MLS transaction. You know, I don't know. I'm not a licensed real estate guy, so I can't advise on that. So it's not legal advice but you know you'll sign these like kind of wild wild west one page documents that are probably more um they're not very neutral i'm i'm guessing but you know like i said if you're working with good people you know you don't need contracts in my opinion yeah right that's what i'm that's what i'm learning too like from from this like it's hard for me because the lawyer, I'm going to, you know, if I were representing me, you know, in this deal, I would probably go harder on this, but like knowing kind of the relationships at stake here and like 
a lot of goodwill between the the investor friend that you that's a mutual friend who referred me to this provider like that's you know i can't really rock the boat too much right you can only ask for the bare minimum like what i actually need the economic terms yeah yeah and and i'll kind of correct myself real quickly because i'm sure someone's like head exploded on that one like i do contracts don't get me wrong but like you said it's the relationship right because the thought is you're going to be working with this guy into the future and, and hopefully that person wants you to work with them that you know you have a contract but it's like hey let's treat each other fairly and let's go in with you know good faith that you know this is what i think we're going to buy what kind of property we're going to buy this is how we're going to work through the transaction to both come to a mutually uh agreement yeah yeah um yeah so the other couple ways of buying a rental is going through the mls or getting a um like kind of like a you know just going to getting a broker and then also the other way is like kind of finding a more turnkey property yourself and getting another broker to represent you on it. In both cases, you're typically doing that MLS transaction. We're using the more this, I don't know whether it's the States um, forms, very neutral document, a lot longer, maybe even seven pages or something like that. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, in the beginning, I felt more comfortable with the MLS stuff. Yeah. I mean, when I bought my primary residence, it was like, eight, 10 pages and my agent walked me through it and I was like, okay, I didn't even try it. I didn't even negotiate any of it other than like maybe the price stuff. But you know, that's like when you're a, like, I don't know, I guess primary residence, you, that's what you expect. Right. But here it's like, okay, now <laughs> no one's going to protect me when I'm buying from the provider. So I really got to think about how this works. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at on this issue. Like I'm trying to figure out what's, what are some things that absolutely should ask for? Like I know about contingencies. Um, maybe we could, talk about that a little bit yeah yeah so some of the contingencies i like to use are oh, i wrote we wrote them down here inspection contingency appraisal contingency and financing contingency yeah. See, if, if you don't if you don't know what that is um i mean i'm not a lawyer so i, I really want to stay neutral here but these are ways of kind of giving yourself an out out of the trend transaction um yeah. obviously you want to know that you're financially solvent to get a loan so you don't have to pull that financing contingency because that's not cool yeah. right to go into the trends and it's like what we're talking about we need to go in with good faith you know some some turnkey providers will, will make you sign something saying hey if this property comes up not appraising which means like let's just say you buy a property at a hundred thousand dollars but their appraisal comes back at 90 grand and there's a difference there sometimes if you write it the right you can back out but the turnkey provider may may have something. Well, if you're within five percent, too bad, so sad, you're stuck. Yeah. Or they may make you waive it altogether. And then you know the inspection. You a big part of this is going through the inspection, getting an inspector in there, and making sure you're not buying a lemon. And then that gives you an out. Right. But also you get a you know on top of this, the big the big uh, overarching thing is like as a turnkey provider, you're very. Uh, you got turnkey providers lining up around the block. And I'll tell you, like when I started doing this in like 2014, going out of state there, there, there were a lot of us, but now it's ridiculous how many people are like, like I can't find cash flow in California. Well, duh. And everybody's figured that out. And it's been a bull market in real estate for the last dozen years. And everybody wants real estate now. So, I mean, some turnkey providers have like lists of people 
and you don't get to see a single property until you come up on up on the queue like three four months later and then they're like all right you have two hours to decide if you want this yeah you know (laughs) i wouldn't really recommend that that type but you know that's that kind of is how the game is yeah yeah so i find myself kind of fortunate with this one like I mean, a lot of goodwill, obviously, between the our investor friend and and this turnkey provider. I think she has like over five, six properties with this this provider. But um, but yeah, like so on top of just like the trust part of it, there's you know, I I think that they didn't ask. So this contract, just like getting into the nitty gritty, they didn't really ask for like a earnest money deposit, like a, just to, that that's non refundable or anything. It's actually there's nothing like that in there. So I could technically walk away after signing this contract if I wanted to, right? Of course, I'd burn that bridge if I did it for no reason, right? Yeah. So um, I, I guess I just want to see like what kinds of things I should try to push in now. I'm trying to finalize the contract before I take. Uh, I'm leaving, like you know, traveling soon, so I'm trying to finalize it before I leave, so I can get my inspector. In. I and think you'll, right now, you'll always be traveling when a transaction is happening, so that's just how life it is. Yeah. <laughs> But so I would do the, ins- the inspection and the financing and I mean, the appraisal was up to you, but I think those, those two are very common. Okay. But you know, you've built, you've built a rapport with the seller and, and you know, he, you're, you're a fair guy. That's why I like you. So like, you know, as long as things don't come up too ridiculous, um, I'm sure you'll just you'll you'll go through the transaction or maybe even get like a little concession, work on a concession, but just, you know, that'll just grease the transaction. And that's where I think if there's one, there's one place in the whole process where one-on-one coaching or just signing up an hour of my time is super critical is during, once you get that inspection report or even a little bit before getting an inspection report to coaching counsel, the inspector and what you want, that's, that's where experience comes in. Yeah. Um, you know, I was trying to trying to write up like an inspection tutorial in the mastermind um, paid coaching page the other night, and I'm like, I just can't do this. It's just it's just more experience and feeling out the relationship and how much you can push, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um. So, but that said, I don't think that you can really get you know these turnkey providers will will have a list price, and that's pretty much the price, dude you might be able to get $500 off if they're desperate, maybe even a thousand if they're really desperate, but the price is the price, but you just have to go into the transaction and spend your $500 and getting an inspector to get you some evidence that the property is not up to par. And then you work the way through the transaction. Um, One, just one aspect is like, let's say the roof, right? Say the roof has, hmm, it's like a 15 year old roof and there's only like the inspector says, Ooh, it's kind of in bad shape. It's only going to last for a few more years. A remedial action could be replacing the whole thing or just putting up shingles and spending like, you know, a couple of thousand dollars on that. Right. I think in that case, the, the, un, you know, these turnkey properties, it, not to say you're just going to have a new roof, right. But uh, you're going to, you should have a roof that should last you maybe about at least 10 years. So whatever gets you up to that length of lifespan. So that may mean this situation that a couple thousand dollars of repairs and a cruise afternoon of work to get it up to that standard is fair game. And that's what you should ask on your inspection report. 
or, or, you know, when you come back to the negotiation table, I think that is fair. You don't want to be one of these turnkey providers that, or turnkey buyers who think that that's, you're old than the world and the moon because you're going to get fired as a customer, <laughs> you know, and never want to work with you again. You want to be fair and reasonable, but, but yeah, then again, you've never done this before. So you don't know what fair and reasonable is. So like the way I approached it without knowing, I mean, just learning through what you provided, like those resources you have on your page and stuff, what I kind of saw I, further down, like when they sent me, I asked for the scope of work on what he did to rehab this property. And then I thought to myself, like, probably like when you had that initial conversation with the inspector, it's probably like, make sure these items are what they say they are. Is that, I mean, is that the right approach? Like, like they say they have a new roof, new HVAC, I think like refinished floors and all this stuff. Like those are the high, like, I think you have somewhere on your page that those are the biggest CapEx expenditures. Like, right, right. Like plumbing, like, is it the right electrical? Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Big, big dollar issues that might like screw you over in the long run when the CapEx tide hits you. Like those are the kinds of things I figured I would ask the inspector to focus on. Right. Is that, am I thinking about that? the Right. 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 And, and this is super critical when you're talking to the inspector, you want to build up a rapport with like that guy because it usually is a dude yeah. <laughs> and he's, and you usually want to find the older ones. Cause I mean, that's, that's in my opinion, like you, you can't really tell who's the good ones or the bad ones. Yeah. You can go on Yelp and whatever, but years of experience, unfortunately reigns supreme in that industry. But the more important thing is that you can talk to the guy and he's not just like, he understands that you're just not another residential owner occupied owner right Mm -hmm. which are 99 percent of the characters he works out there you know you you want to tell him save save the space in the report and don't put any of this garbage like oh this concrete panel for the sidewalk is not level with this concrete panel or this point still dangerous you know like you want the big stuff so that you can he can build up ammo for you to go to the negotiation table but if he fills up that report with all a bunch of noise and junk now you look like an idiot at the negotiation table, right? Right. Yeah. So he needs to be on the same page as you, you know, and be like, oh, you know, John, I know exactly what you want, right? Like you want the big stuff and you know, I can focus in on that for you. And then, you know, maybe build the rapport enough to be like, hey, you know, like if you are buying this as a, owner, a non-owner occupied rental, like what would the big things you would ask for? Like, would you buy this property? You know, this is like kind of on par with whatever you're seeing out there. Right. Cool. Yeah, that's good. That's a good approach. Yeah. So I guess I, I should send that to him, right? Like the scope of work that the turnkey provider sent me, like send that to him and then have a call and say, maybe before you get in there, this is like what I'm focused on. And, and then ask him that question, like, what would you focus on and see what he says and make sure he's thinking about it that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we, we've talked in, you know, you, you saw that mastermind call where, you know, different nuances, like, you don't connect the turnkey provider with inspector, right? You want to yeah. play the quarterback. Um, a lot of guys will just say, well, here, inspector, here's the phone and contact for the provider, right? Like not to say people aren't going to do, you know, are not dishonest, but you know, that's a good situation where you have collusion behind your back. Right? Wow. So try and, you know, tell the turnkey provider, say, Hey, when are you busy? All right. Tuesday at eight o'clock it is. And then you call your inspector, All right? Tuesday, eight o'clock, be at this place, talk to this person mm, nice. and to minimize all that. And this is how you do this without ever flying there. 
just doing it smart. But again, at the end of the day, you got to trust professionals. Right. And, you know, it's kind of a shame that this, this guy is so critical yet you're only paying him like 300, 500 bucks. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that thing that was really important. I think this guy was, um, I ended up choosing someone on the, on a list of, of um, one of your like referred providers had a like send me their vendor list. Um, when I had a call with them, I don't know, eight months ago, I haven't found a good property through them yet, but this guy was on that list. And then the investor friend referred, um, this inspector and same with this provider. So it's like, I got enough objectivity that I'm not worried that it's just someone this provider's paying off. Right. So I was able to book this guy with some more confidence and then I just needed to talk to him. Like, yeah. Talk to the man, right. That's, yeah. Relationships is important. If you've been following my journey, I've been selling my initial real property and transitioning into syndication deals lately for a more purely passive investment strategy. One critical part of my portfolio is the American Home Preservation Fund, or what folks in the Hui call AHP for short. George Newberry, once apartment owner, operator, and mentor to me, is now sponsoring the podcast. His private fund, which by the way also accepts non-accredited investors, cuts the middlemen out and allows you to invest directly with him to fight the mortgage crisis in America. Join him by purchasing distressed mortgages while getting a double-digit annual return paid monthly. Find something else better out there? Well, let me know. Feel good knowing that you are helping families stay in their home after buying their underwater note at a huge discount. Invest as little as $100 by going to ahpservicing.com investors. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. I like to buy stuff. Well, that's a liability. All right. So moving on to item four here, property management. Right. This one was, um, you want me to jump into this one? Yeah, yeah, sure. So this one's a little tricky for me because I think a lot of um, – a lot of the providers, you know, if someone's been looking out for providers, a lot of them do it in-house, right? And so there's that whole argument, like, is are the incentives aligned or not? If they're selling you something just to get the property management on it or versus are they selling you something and they want to make sure it it does well, right? So then in my – so that's like the whole, like, could it be in-house property management or not for turnkey? Um in my specific case, this provider doesn't have in-house per se, but they have a relationship with two property managers. That's kind of like part of their system is what I'm understanding as I talk to them more about it and to the investor friend. Um, I'm learning that it's, it's kind of like this provider uses two different managers, puts a lot of his clients, investors, like um, properties with them and his own portfolio. And then kind of is able to play them off each other and be like, Hey, not play them off per se, but say, Hey, this guy's doing it this way. Maybe you should try doing it like this just to get the best out of each of his two property managers. And he's selling that as part of his system to me. So I didn't understand that at first. I think I talked to you, Lane, earlier about in the process about bring, um, bringing in your property manager that you had recommended. But then as I raised it to him on the call, I, I think I kind of got the sense that he was saying, and then I talked to the investor friend later, like, you don't get his guarantees, like his work product, his stamp of approval and handholding afterwards if I go with someone outside of that his world, the property manager. So he can't really like, and he's like, yeah, cost control is a big part of what I'm selling you. So like, if I'm selling you a good property as it is today, I, I stand behind that work and then I'll continue to service it with my teams at a cheaper rate than you would get if you went with someone else outside 
other property managers? Because I guess he's saying he flexed a little bit of muscle because he has so much, you know, at stake with these property managers. So that's kind of where I'm leaning like, okay, I should probably use who he recommended as opposed to going with your guy. But it's still like, I want to make sure that seems to be the right choice for me at this point. But I kind of want to get your thoughts on like this whole, how this whole thing works. And maybe it's helpful for listeners too, because I feel like there's different ways that this property management stuff works with turnkey providers. Like they'll have it in-house, they'll have it the way my situation is where they outsource it, but like have a, some kind of control over it. And then they can go like completely third party. Like I just picked my own, like I, like if I went with yours and then there's like levels of accountability there. Right. So this guy, he's referring you to a couple people. Are those people in his company or? No, they're, they're outside his company, but he owns, he says he owns a, a, a large portfolio of properties and he like splits it 50, 50 with of each of those guys. So he's able to say like, he has some power over them and he refers to each of those two. So he's kind of like saying like, Hey, they'll listen to what I say type thing. And also like he, he says something about like having his own crews, like being able to do like smaller things, right? Like if AC goes out, the example here is like if an AC goes out instead of a property manager, just calling an AC repair guy, it's like 150 bucks just to come and look at it. He can get his own crew to be like, cause I copy him on work orders. I have to the property manager. Right. And then, and then this turnkey provider would be copied and he'd be like, wait a minute, let me just go and send my guys out there. I pay him like 25 bucks an hour anyways. They're on my payroll so they can look at it and they're on my reno team so they can look at it and fix it if they need to in like an hour and then also spot other things on the property that might be wrong. And then like that way he can keep a pulse on the properties. And from what I understand, the investor friend said that system worked really well for her. Like she has like, you know, like over six properties with him and he's, you know, it's been working really well that way. Well, I guess one thing, like the turnkey providers, I don't like using their property manager. I feel like it's too much power, conflict of interest, because what if that property is a piece of junk? Well, that that in-house property management is going to kind of hide the dust under the the rug for you, right? Because you want to be able to have a third party person being telling you when you want to buy another property from this guy, you want to ask your property manager, like, hey, is this a good area? Is even a good property, right? So that relationship is is key and another asset to you. And you kind of forego that when you kind of work with these collusion type of, I'm not saying it in a bad way, but, um, and of course there's, I'm sure there's kickbacks and all that kind of stuff happening too. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if these guys give you the level of service you're you're wanting, that's, you know, I have no problem with that. That's just, it is what it is. I don't know. I, ha- I haven't been in the, the conversations that you've had, but based on what you're telling me, I would maybe, it sounds like I'll just try them out. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah that's, that's, that's how I've done it. Like just try them out. And, and sort of what makes me fire them is like when I get these ridiculous, like $800 plumbing repair, that's just a freaking leak. And <laughs> like what yeah. I key in and on is like the, what is the hours of in the work order? If it's 12 hours to fix a toilet leak, goodness gracious like what are you guys doing like watching tv on my couch and like and there's two of them you know (laughs) what the heck that's a patty cake all day long you know trying to get my toilet unclogged and sometimes it's ridiculous right and that's when i move and that's when your network is so critical that then you can ask your your buddy like who are you using at that point okay yeah that's Um, that's a good point I don't know. I mean, I would say, I would just say just try him out because he's kind of put you in a hard position, right? He's like, hey, John, like, look, man, 
I really suggest using these guys and, you know, just to kind of grease the transaction a little better. You can kind of like, all right, well, we'll see how it goes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But then again, I did have my guy go check out the property for you. So, you know, obviously that's time out of his schedule. I know. Too, that's, right. That's, so, yeah. but he gets it, you know, my, my, my guy gets it. He does it for a lot of my <laughs> clients too. So it's, you know, a lot of my guys will go with him too. Yeah. But um, yeah, so uh, that's why I figured like I didn't, that was the sensitivity too, where like after I talked to your guy and he was a good guy, like I didn't, I, I couldn't, you know, it's just tough to be like, I know I took someone's time and he did me a favor to look and say, you know, this looks good. This property looks good to buy, you know, give me his thumbs up there. So like, I think I'll have to have a conversation with him probably and just let him know like this is how the system is working with this provider. And then just let them know, like, hey, you're like, I'm anything outside this provider, you're on my top of my list. I want to work with you, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, I guarantee. I think with seventy percent certainty, you will be calling my guy in the next three years <laughs> for something else, right? I don't yeah. know. Maybe maybe send them like a hundred dollar gift card or something like that. Yeah. You that know, if idea. if anything, maybe in the next property, he can like you know do a drive-by for you yeah that's one thing anything like outside of this kind of arrangement that's what i'm learning right i'm obviously it's my first time like even doing this out of state thing so it's like you it's it's you're juggling a lot of different pieces and i'm like man i like to have too many wheels in motion i just don't want to like be wasting people's time so that's a good idea like i should i should you know anything outside of this system i feel like obviously he's the one to work with but also like i should probably talk to him and let him know how much yeah. I appreciate his time. I mean, an- another idea I had, like, when you actually head down to this place, because you've never, you've never been to Birmingham, right? No, I <laughs> yeah, no. you don't, you don't need to, and there's not, not much to see out there. But I mean, if you ever went down there, I was gonna say, well, maybe you take him out to lunch. But you know what? Like, a lot of us guys in real estate, we don't want to have freaking lunch. Right? <laughs> like, it's time is more important. It's like, don't bother us, you know? Yeah. He's going to take that as a more of an offense and he's be like, man, I'm not going to. You know, like, I mean, I'll say it here, right? Like, you know, people come to Hawaii and I'm like, look, yeah, you signed up for the Hui Deal Pipeline come, but dude, you never invested with me. I'm not going to have lunch with you, you know? <laughs> we'll have a call. Well, I can wash my dishes and like, you know, pick up after my dog in the meantime and do something else. So we have a 15-minute conversation, but you know, time is valuable, right? So that's why my idea is like, give them a gift card or something like that. Yeah, that's a good call. People, people, I think a lot of people are just like, man, I don't know where, where they get their manners from, but they're just like, oh, it's, it's a favor that I get to take them to, to lunch. Yeah. You know? <laughs> man, I can buy my own lunch, you know? Yeah. That. <laughs> nice. But uh, just, um, yeah, so okay, that sounds like a good idea. And then I got to, yeah. I'll have to see what the property management agreement looks with my turnkey guy. So cool. So insurance is the next one. What's right. what's going on there? So I haven't started on this road yet. The investor friend mentioned that she could give me her contact, but I also want to know like if you had someone and, and like at what stage too, right? Like I know you obviously have someone, but like what stage do I when I'm dealing with all this other stuff, like signing the contract, getting the inspector in, when do you engage the insurance person? Well, you might want to do it right after the purchase and sale agreement is done because then you give them the address and then they, you, you know, that spreadsheet, the analysis spreadsheet, right? That's when you start, those are all guesses still, right? Like I think it's like certain percentage of the purchase price, right? 
Now you go take the address to the insurance guy and say, hey, give me a quote so I can fill in that with an actual. Right. Um, yeah. I've got kind of some podcasts on that. And, you know, the, the, you know, in the Facebook group, I really shy away from giving recommendations for yeah. tax, legal, and whatever because it changes from time to time. Makes sense. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Cool. cool. No, no, that makes sense. But um, yeah, there, there are, com- there, you know, there's, there's companies out there that definitely be watching out for that. What they do this is like this master lease trick or mass, not master lease, master policy list. So they'll, they'll insure all the small claims and like 25,000, mm-hmm. but on the bigger one, they'll kind of like, I don't know what the word is like subcontract the claim out to somebody else. So that's something nasty you should watch out for. And that's why they're cheaper. Right. but they're going to fight you extra hard on the bigger stuff because it's not you and them. It's you, them, and another third party. That's right. ins- really the one insuring you. Right. And then so, just since I'm like totally new to this, maybe this is a question for me to ask the insurance person, right? Is, um, it, am I, is this going to be the same type of insurance um, that people talk about? Like instead of doing an LLC or whatever to protect yourself, you can just get umbrella insurance to protect yourself. If you're like starting out and it's not worth for me, California paying $800 a month for an LLC out of state, then maybe it's better to just get a bigger policy. Is this the same policy I'm negotiating now? No, this is not an umbrella. Umbrella is on top of this one. So this one ensures this one property. Then if you would like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, one recommendation. I, I do think umbrella is nice to have on top of this. Right. And it would be the same person giving me that quote too? or um, Same or different. Okay. Um, and then same thing with the tax too, right? Because you've got a, right now you just have a placeholder for the taxes. Yeah. And, um, had another mastermind member, he did all this calculations on what the taxes would be. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to start to tell you what it is. Every city, every state, every county has a different calculation and it changes all the time. There's no way of knowing. Right. Really. And then a lot of times the, what you really got to watch out for is these properties, especially if it's turnkey. Like this property might be worth 50 grand on Zillow, right? right. And that's why I say never look at Zillow because right. it was a piece of junk a year ago. It was a crack house potentially. Right. And now when you buy it in two years, the market value could double or even yeah. triple. And that is what the property tax are based on. Yeah. And what I, and what I learned, like looking at, at this property specifically and trying to dig into how they got their tax number, the provider gave out it's like you go on the county assessor's website for this specific property right in whatever county in alabama and then you look when you read the numbers and they show you like property tax over the years it's only like a certain assessed value that gets taxed and i don't even know how to come up with that number it's like some percentage it's like it was something like five percent of the total purchase price and then they tax that assessed value like at i don't know 0.05 whatever it is i can't remember but then they get their tax from there. And so you kind of see the trend over time, but those, those percentages change, right? Like over time, like it used to be 5% and now it's 5.5%. And then the assessment changes. So it's like, it's hard to tell by just looking at Zillow and being like, it's double the value. Like, you know, it's going to be double the value when I buy it. But then that doesn't mean that assessed value is going to double, right? Yeah. And what, what I mean is like the calculations get like are really confusing. And sometimes it's like 27% of the 15% of this state or like yeah. of this of the land value, 5% of the land value, but 95% of the property value, you know, it's like all these weird things. Yeah. That, but on the analysis spreadsheet, I think it's like set at like two to 3% or something like that of purchase price is usually what it is. But right. when you're looking from like, um, like Chicago, I think is a big tax state. 
where Alabama is very lower taxes. I think it's, I mean, on my, my properties, like hundred thousand dollar properties, I think I might even pay on like 1500 a year or something like that. So yeah, this is all like the detective work, right? That you have to do while you're in due diligence on the side of doing the inspection. So there's a lot of parallel paths going on. Right. Um, but it is forgiving, right? I mean, yeah, you totally screw it up and yeah, maybe that's just an extra thousand dollars a year, right? Not gonna, you know, it's not gonna make, not gonna ruin everyone's day at the end of the decade. Yeah, true. true. Relax about it, you know. Just know that it's a head and shoulders above the stock market, right? Yeah, for sure. So um, financing. Oh, maybe for financing, it's pretty plain, right? Like I, I talked, you, you had some lenders. I talked to them, got my docs to them, got pre-approved. And then one thing I wanted to ask you is like, I think something on a podcast you had done with the lender talking about um, there's like this 2% cap for seller credits, closing credits. And so that's something I was thinking about earlier on in the uh, purchase agreement, thinking about negotiating in because it doesn't do anything to the turnkey providers. So for the example is like, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar property and I want to do, I want to get the lender to finance the part of that closing cost up to 2%. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that right, but pretty much I can get $2,000 that they can raise it right. 102,000. Now the turnkey provider is getting an extra two thousand dollars but now i'm only paying 20 percent of that and then on the back end they refund me two thousand of those dollars to my closing credits and so i'm wondering like what that's probably something that's not even a big deal to the turnkey provider right so like if i ask for it shouldn't i be able to get it yeah yeah so you gotta you know like because this seller paid what we're talking about is seller paid paid closing costs based if, if you're getting a fan made freddie mac loan there's different restrictions where they, they have a cap on it. So for example, your primary residence, it's a really big cap. Um, yeah, I think you can put like four to 6% in it. So yeah. um, with non-owner occupied, I think right now it's 2%, but this changes all the time. So talk to your lender. So the game here is like, let's just say you close on a property and, or not, you have a purchase sale contract for a hundred. Or you both both sides agreed to a hundred, mm-hmm. and then you you spend like two minutes on the phone explaining what you're doing here and saying, "Hey, Mister Turnkey Provider or Mister Seller, mm-hmm. can you bump up the price by two, you know, two grand or two percent, and then just write in there that seller pay seller will pay two percent closing costs for a buyer." And most times it's a lot very logical, and they're like, "All right, cool, whatever." For them, it really doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. I think. As long as it appraises, right? I guess that's the only. Yeah, place. yeah, and that's where you have to have the understanding, right? Because now you're running more risk of it not appraising, right? By two percent, they may want something in writing to maybe even waive then the financing contingency mm-hmm. because you're doing it. But I mean, this works wonders on primary residence, right? Because if you can, like, say, let's just say the cap is five percent. Now, if you bought like a um a hundred thousand dollar home and now you can credit back five percent you just raise the price to 105 and get back the five percent and right. especially if like you're going in with like a five percent down payment like this is how you get in with like zero money right yeah. and i don't know if that's exactly how it works for primary residents but that's you know that's how it starts the conversation starts yeah and most yeah. lenders you know this is where it's important to work with the right lender because most lenders will just be like what 
whoa, man, you know, I don't understand what you're doing. This just seems like fraud to me, you know. They just, they just don't know how to do this stuff, and they're just confused. That's why you never work with, like, a big bank. You work with, you know, people who are competent. But that's just, you know, that just helps a little bit, right? Because especially when, you know, that's, that may be the difference from you. You know, you got, like I said, we have, you have $40,000 of liquidity to go at this. Um, you buy the first one, maybe you squeak out at just $25,000 out of pocket, right? Where it would have been like 27 or 28. Yeah. And that might need the difference between a few months of buying a property earlier on the yeah. next one. Exactly. Yep. That's a, I figure that's important just to ask, like, why not? It's easy to get if I can get them to agree, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, this stuff all changes all the time, right? The lending requirements and, you know, what you can, what you can do with this stuff changes so i guess the idea is if i could talk to the provider get it into the contract and then get it signed and send it to the lender then they could tell me hey you can't do this then i could go back to the seller and be like hey they changed the rules i can't do this right and get it out early rather than later when they're already underwriting it yeah yeah but any other questions from here that we skimmed over no i think you you hit them all um it's pretty helpful so i I just need it i have some action items obviously that i gotta do but it's all like in parallel. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, you know, kind of going back to the bigger picture, you've got this closing on a property. Um, that's a, that's a big one. And then that HELOC dude, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. The nice thing, the nice thing about HELOCs are like, you can set it up, but you don't have to use it right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does it affect, um, just at a high level, does it affect your credit? The bigger the, I mean, maybe not so much at all. Like I don't think so because you're not tapping it. Right. Okay. But I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, a I lot guess, of yeah. if your your credit score, as long as you have like a six fifty or six eighty, you're getting the best score. Yeah. Oh, because it kind of just caps out after that or tapers off. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if you're like at six twenty. I mean, you can do like these things called trade lines and just become an authorized user on somebody's account. And I think that bumps your score up 50 points or even 100 points. Hmm. You can usually like pay like three to $500. That's a little trick to kind of get you over the the dotted line. Hmm. But, you know, I don't recommend holding onto these properties for more than three to seven years. So it may not even matter. But that definitely helps somebody like who is not qualified to get qualified for that credit score requirement. Right. You guys can learn more about that simple com slash trade lines, which is more for like, if you were at like 500 or something like that, I think you need a credit score at 620 or some, let's just say it's 620 and you were at like 590. I could put you as authorized user on my credit card. Um, obviously I charge you, right? Cause it's like, there's always a fee for that, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like you would pay about $500, right? But this is what I'm doing. I like, I let people go on my credit card. I use a third party so they make it all clean and stuff like that and kind of protect people's privacy a little bit. But you would pay the company $500 and they would pay me 300 to do that. That's cool. To get people over the bump, that's nice. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you should actually, that's actually a good um, thing that you might want to look into. If you got a whole bunch of credit cards, mm-hmm. like if you were one of those guys in your 20s doing all that trial hacking garbage, now you got a lot of credit cards, but now you can like harvest a lot of money from it. You're basically um, renting out your credit. Wow. And I mean, I can make like 
10, 20 grand a year doing that kind of stuff. And that, that, you know, when your cash flow is, you know, right on the bubble at what 20,000 a year, that's, that might be the difference. That's huge. Yeah. That's really cool. I never heard of that. Does it, I mean, is there any risk to you like privacy wise or these companies protect all that? Um, well, so they send you the credit card of the authorized user and supposedly that never gets sent out to the authorized user. So I'm always kind of thinking, all right, if I was an authorized user and I really want to scam this other guy, maybe I could call the credit card company, but you never have the card number, so you can't really get access to it. So maybe if they hacked something and got the card number mm-hmm. or found out where you lived and intercepted it. Yeah. Um, I've also heard that, you know, if you go to the bank, the, um, somebody, and this is why your network is so important. Somebody actually called the bank and asked them like, and they went into the, you know, somebody went into the branch, you know, at Chase or whatever and tried to do this. Like they, they're not going to let them do it. Yeah. You know, cause you're the master on the line. Yeah. I, I think it's pretty smart. I think it freaks most people out, but you know, Hey, that's, that's like anything in life, right? If it freaks people out, it must be something you might want to look into, right? Like, buying properties out of state that you've never seen before. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, who would want to do that or put 50 grand into a syndication deal and don't get any like certificate back or whatever. That's crazy. You know, who would want to do that? That's interesting. I got to look into that. You have, you said there was a link somewhere. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I post like all the money I make doing it and it's like really fun because I'll get these emails and I'll be like, Oh, you got, you got, you got somebody who wants to buy your trade line. Like it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah it's like getting a referral like for, it's that's pretty cool yeah i mean from one you get the more longer the the age of the the line and the bigger the credit line so it needs to be a credit card older than two years mm-hmm. like so like if you have a credit line that's like five thousand dollars and like a couple years old you can get like a hundred bucks every month wow and you can have two of these authorized users but they have to stay on there for two months and then you cycle them out and you can do it again. But like, I have like cards from like 2007. That's like $20,000, $30,000 of credit. Those I can get like almost $400 wow. per. So it's two, two authorized users at a time. Yeah. Again, that cycles out, but you can make, you know, just from one card, you can make like three, $400 a month. And that's like a turnkey rental, right? That's a really good, you know, with no money down, yeah, that's like a turnkey rental. Yeah, you don't get the mortgage pay down, appreciation, or tax bonus from it, and it is active income. Yeah. I think I haven't got I haven't got any tax forms yet because I just started doing it. But cool, you know, well, it's a lot, a lot better than driving Uber. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Any anything else uh, you wanted to chat about before we get going here? Um, just maybe really quickly. Uh, I mean, this probably benefits others, but we've talked about this in the past. Um, your ideas on tapping the 401k, right? Like we talked about in the past, like that's the second after the HELOC is probably the next big liquidity um, piece I have. So that's like, obviously take the 10% penalty and then the tax hit, but drawing that over time would be another source for future turkey rentals, right? Just to buy it. Yeah. Let me see where you have that. It's a uh, page usually in here. Yeah. The deferred comp, right? Is right there. On there. Yeah. Just right oh, here, 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 here. Right. So the first question is, is this from an old employer? And I know it is, right? Because you left this guy yep. a while ago. 
I mean, when I did it, I had about the same thing, a little less, but I just thought it was um, better to just take it out and pay the taxes. But here's the game that's being played. And I've done this before on another coaching call is you're trying to stay above that next tax bracket, right? So you figure out where your AGI falls. And if you take this all at one year, you're obviously going to go above that, that next tax bracket line. So it's a game of just taking enough out to stay under it. So I think for you, I don't know, figure out where you are in the tax brackets, married file jointly. Because maybe if you, you have your order of operations is to use this 40 grand first and then use the HELOC next. The HELOC is going to keep you burning for a long time. Okay. That, that likely will get you through 2020. 21 maybe so you technically don't need to take this out but i would rather take use this money to invest than the heloc if that makes sense because i feel i personally feel in my humble opinion Mm -hmm. that this is more of a risk at this point of going down i don't know what you have it in like yeah i have it in index funds i think but yeah but most people, if you just turn into the, the coaching call now and you're not, you haven't been into this tribe for a while, you think taking money out of your deferred comp retirement plan is an absolute sin. <laughs> and we should shut down this YouTube channel and I should never be allowed to talk ever again. No, I mean, it, it's like, dude, I've talked to people about it and they're like, you're crazy. But I even found it like, it's in like Tom Wilwright's book, right? Like I... It's there, right? Like he just talks It's about in it. a book. It must be true, right? It's on the internet. It must be true. He's a bestseller. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, it's a free country. I can say what I want. So here's what I, how I would play it. If you, if you kind of trust me here, I would take money out of the deferred comp first, right? That'd be the order of operations for the next rental property. Okay. But I, let's just say, I, I don't know. I would be strategic on how I take that out. Because right now your AGI is somewhere in that 100, 150 range. Yeah. So let's just say the next tax bracket is starts at 200, mm-hmm. right? I don't know what it is. You got to figure it out on your own and get your tax guy on board. That's where I, I stop. I, I help you with the strategy, but those exact numbers where you get your guys involved, your team. So there's this hurdle here, right? 200,000 and you're at like 150 or whatever you have 50,000 of Delta between there. So of the 138,000 of deferred comp, just to say in 2019, you take 50 out to get you right up to that amount, no more. Mm-hmm. And then t- 2020, you take another whatever to, to get up to that level again. Mm-hmm. So it may take you three years, four years to take this whole 138 out, right? But yeah. if you want, if you, if you're not doing anything, you want to pick up another property or go into a syndication deal, screw it. Maybe just take it all out or take it all in two chunks. Right. So that, that this is the game that's been playing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like the, the, the worst, worst thing that could happen once you get into the next um, bracket, I guess is it's all incremental anyways. Right. I just guess it depends on the percentage jump. So it goes from like 30 to I don't know. I don't know the numbers right now, but let's say it goes from 25 to 30%. Then yeah, you're paying 5% more tax on the 
incremental dollars above that bracket, right? But you're not, that's like the risk. That's the worst that could happen. I feel like it won't. Yeah, yeah, but but like, I think what it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be like, there's no black and white way of doing it. You're gonna have to get up to that amount. Right. Say it's 50 grand, get you up to that amount and then take money from the HELOC. Right. Because that's, you're not paying taxes on it. You're just t- taking a loan from yourself, right? Right. If you need more money. Yeah. So if, if there's five deals that come up, now you're taking from the HELOC after that. But then come 2020, now you can start taking from the deferred comp, taking the withdrawals from there up to that the next tax bracket right. or doing or taking the HELOC. Yeah. Well, let's just say you exhausted all the HELOC, which is, I don't know how you're going to do that. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, then you just say, screw it. Let's just take it all out, go in the next tax bracket. It's not the end of the world, like you said. But there's a strategic way of doing this to optimize it. Right, right. That's what we're all about, being smart, not working hard, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> smart. Cool. Yeah. I mean, you, you know what hard work is. This is only 10 minutes of hard work and thought going about it. So this is, this is easy and simple compared yeah. to other stuff you do. But, yeah, thanks for doing this. Um, if you guys like more of this, um, uh, John's in our uh, mastermind group mastermind so uh, if you guys like this stuff we have calls on this every other week and um get to meet cool people like him and uh build your tribe that way but yeah thanks john for joining us man yeah absolutely thanks Lane. thanks for all the help so far and this is hopefully this is helpful to someone it definitely is for me so cool man talk to you later all right take care This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.